Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Catherine K. Abdulbaki. Catherine's the author of Dancing into the Light, a winner of the Silver Prize from the Nonfiction Authors Association. She was born in Washington, D.C. to an Arab father and an American mother. She grew up in Iran, Kuwait, Beirut, and Jerusalem, where she attended Arabic, British, and American schools. She attended the American University of Beirut, Lebanon, has a BA in journalism journalism from George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and an MA in creative writing from George Mason University, Virginia. As an astute observer of two distinct cultures, she's published five works of fiction, some of which have been taught at universities in multicultural literature, women's studies, and Arab studies departments. She is the recipient of the Mary Roberts Reinhardt Award for Short Fiction and has three grown children. She resides with her husband in McLean, Virginia. You can find more about her at katherineabdulbaki.com. It's A-B-D-U-L-B-A-K-I.com. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for hosting me. It's a pleasure. I'm really glad to have you, and and thank you for your book. Um, as I was mentioning before we came on, such a, a such an intense time for us to be having this conversation with uh, the Middle East erupting at the moment, and um, I feel I got to travel with you to places I've never been and um, have a sense of the experience of of being so intimately connected with those places. So I want to thank you for that. It, it really moved me. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm glad I'm glad you saw it through my book. Yeah. And um it it was a very interesting juxtaposition. Of course, you know, the reason to come on my show is mostly that your memoir has so much to do about your with your personal losses. Um but also against the backdrop of of bigger losses going on in the, in the background, and I wonder if you saw it that way. Um, for instance, um, I resonated. I moved a lot as a child, all within the United States, but we moved a lot, and um, that sense of displacement was so familiar to me. That's a loss, and um, having relatives who are very much affected by global losses. That's a loss, you know. Um, did you separate all of those or were, were you aware of kind of a through line of grief within them? Well, as a child, of course, each, you know, each section happened to me and I, you know, I grieved losses. When you move, you lose pets, you lose friends, you lose um, acquaintances. Luckily, I spent 10 years in Kuwait, so that was my 
growing up period from six to 16. So I didn't move during that period. But of course, during that time, also, my family had a lot of losses uh, with property and, and and homes in in the political situation in the Middle East. So that was the backdrop. But I, when I came to write the book, of course, I saw that as um, uh, differently from an adult perspective. I saw my small life and losses within the larger context, as you quite rightly put it. So it's a double loss kind of you're not only losing personal uh, a parent and a, and a brother in my case, but you're also losing that bigger sense of calm and peace and safety because what you thought was just the normal of everything being peaceful suddenly erupts and you lose other things as well. So yeah, as an adult, I think I I sort of realized that, but I tried to, to, to just talk about it from the voice of a child so that you got to see everything firsthand without too many. I feel you really succeeded at that. I, I had a sense of the background picture, but I also got such a strong sense of your child's response to it all. Um, and, and how, you know, children are pretty centrifugal. They're pretty interested in themselves in some ways, right? <laughs> They're the center of it for bad and good, right? And um, I got that picture, but also this kind of, we're, they're still noticing things, aren't they? Children are still noticing things. Um, let's start a little before the losses came into your life, because um, within the backdrop of, of the, the, um, the othering that we do, people do to other people sure. your parents and their families um i wouldn't say overcame lived well with the differences uh that there was so much love between them and around them which could have been quite otherwise i felt um but their winning personalities won their families over too, wouldn't you say? I would. You know, it was at a time when uh, my American um, grandparents, who were from Nashville, Tennessee, and, well, worldly in a sense, my grandfather was a dentist, my grandmother was um, an English professor in a college, so they were worldly, but still for their daughter to marry uh, an Arab from Jerusalem, a Palestinian, this was something that they had never thought about. Um, and of, of course, they wanted to know who he was. And this, and my parents had eloped, essentially, because my mother was sure no one would accept him anyway. So there was that. But on my father's side, I think his family was also very accepting. Uh, initially, my of course, his family was, oh, no, he's gone and married a foreigner. And no, he'll know, never come back, back, right? Exactly. The feeling <laughs> is that he'll never come back. Um, but once they met my mother, and uh, she was just very open-minded, very curious about everything, very accepting, non-judgmental, uh, both, both, they loved her and she loved him. And uh, it, I mean, she loved them and nothing ever was made of the fact that she was not an Arab or a Muslim. They just simply accepted her for what she was. Uh, luckily, both of my parents were not overtly very religious, so that there was never a clash that I felt really uh, everybody. No, just... Although you felt the differences, certainly, 
And certainly I'm, I'm thinking of the period of time when you were going to both an, an American school and an, and an, uh, an Arab school in Kuwait. Yes. <laughs> how intensely different the cultural expectations were in those two, those two schools. That's a lot to incorporate. Yeah, there was two different worlds, and my mother insisted I go to the Arabic school to learn Arabic, which she could not uh, help me with. She never spoke much. But uh, the Arab world was totally uh, its own world, you know, a village, fisherman village, so very traditional Kuwaitis. This was before the days of TV or even telephones. Nobody had any of those. Um, and so that was one world. And then the expat world where we lived in our American compound with British and American expats. That was its own world. So I went back and forth each day and really I knew of the differences. I felt the differences, but I managed. Uh, children adapt. You know, they accept. <laughs> they, well, you know, I think of uh, this is not a comparable experience, but, you know, in divorce, uh, some of the things people worry about is how are kids going to you know, sure. with two different, but actually kids learn what works in one place and what works in the other. Right. You know, it's oh, not right. a huge problem if it's not an adult problem. Right. And it seems as if that happened with you. So a very rich childhood and then marked by quite profound loss during that period that you're talking about when you were in Kuwait. Yes. Yes. Could you share a little bit from your book about your brother? Yes, I'll start with that. My brother was born when I was seven years old, and um, he he actually passed away when he was 18 months old. And that was in 1962 from a heart ailment that we brought him to the States to have surgery for. And I will read a little bit about this segment at this part of my life. My brother was scheduled to have his heart surgery performed in a few weeks. The doctors had decided he was old enough and it had been time to coincide with our summer visit to Honolulu. My father, having finally agreed to let Munib have the surgery, was to fly with him from Honolulu to San Francisco, where it would take place at Children's Hospital. My mother couldn't go with them because she was scheduled to be in the hospital for more tests. Her illness, of which I knew very little, would keep her in Honolulu with her parents, while my father stayed with our cousins Nora and John Hampton during Munib's surgery. A week or so later, my father and Munib, my brother, would return to Honolulu, and we'd all fly back to Kuwait. When the day came for my father to take Munib to San Francisco, we were all very optimistic. It was exciting to think that Munib would be a part of a new wave of advanced heart surgery. He'd come home with his heart mended and would grow stronger as a result. Although to us, he was a bubbly, healthy 18-month-old, the doctors made it clear that the surgery was necessary for him to continue to grow at a normal rate and live a healthy life. As soon as Munib and my father left for San Francisco, I missed my brother's chubby face and infectious smile. I was even a little jealous that he'd get to be with Nora and John Hampton, our fun cousins, who seemed to live a magical life 
in their mountaintop house in Orinda, overlooking cloud-shrouded Mount Diablo. Once my father and Munib arrived in San Francisco, we received word that all Munib's preliminary hospital tests had gone well and plans were made for the surgery. Right away, my little brother became a local celebrity. He was photographed by several of the San Francisco and Oakland newspapers that published stories about the little boy from Arabia, who was about to undergo experimental heart surgery in San Francisco's own children's hospital. We received copies of the newspaper articles with the close-up photographs of Munib standing in his hospital crib, smiling at the nurse as she reached out with a spoon to feed him. Such a handsome little boy, everyone said, with those flirtatious blue eyes and that smile. My mother, still in the hospital having tests, was as pleased as we were with the articles and photographs. She and my grandmother joked of Munib charming the nurses with his seductive Arab glances. His eyes indeed were wide and beautiful in the photographs as he opened his mouth for the nurse's spoon. A day or so later, my father called to tell us that Munib's surgery had been a complete success, that he was resting and doing well. They would be returning in a week, as planned. A day later, on a breezy summer day, my grandmother called me in from where I was playing across the street. I ran across the road and into the house, surprised to find my mother standing in the living room. Mommy, I shouted in surprise, you're back from the hospital. Yes, sweetie, she said, opening her arms wide to hug me. Then my mother took my hand and led me into her bedroom. The rest is a blur, but in those next few minutes, she managed to tell me that Munib had died. I stared at her, confused. But he's fine, I insisted. Daddy said so. Her upper lip quivered despite her calm tone. I imagined she took me in her arms, but I remember nothing after that except my howling as the meaning of what she just told me began to sink in. No, I screamed in disbelief. I want my brother. I screamed over and over that I wanted Munib. I can't remember whether my mother was crying only that she tried to console me as I continued to wail. I want my brother. I could hardly breathe between sobs. The air around me was closing in, squeezing my heart, which was pounding so hard I could barely stand the pain. Everything in the world was collapsing. I wanted this horrible, horrible moment to disappear, to wake up and find this was all a nightmare and that everything was fine and Munib would be coming home with my father. My grandmother may have come into the bedroom. Perhaps she was crying too. I remember nothing except my own numbing, horrible pain when I realized that everything in my life was turned upside down. Horrible things did happen, even to my very own family, to me. I'm, I'm aware in the book that you had inklings before that, you know, that you were trying to sort out this death thing for yourself, yes. uh, which children do. I, I think most children for some period do think quite a bit about death, 
um, and try to grapple with it. But it's different if it happens. Yeah. Because to me, then you know it can happen at any time to anyone, which is quite a different thing, isn't it? I think you captured that so well that it would never be completely not real to you after that moment, would it? That's so correct, because, you know, your existential questions started with me around six years old. And my parents, like probably most normal parents, would say, that's not going to happen for a long time, and we're going to be together for a long time, and this sort of thing. Of course, neither of them had any inkling what would happen. But this suddenly, the horror of it. Um, and, how, uh, you know, something I say quite a bit about children in grief is um, development stops for no person. I thought I thought you captured that well that you're busy having a childhood and this. Right. And so I would I would be curious to know at what point when do you think obviously you were aware that something was going on with your mother at 7 but when do you think that began because sometimes children always feel, also feel it even if they don't know it. I just wondered about that. Yes, well, um, at this point, this was when I was nine, because two years. Oh, passed. two years later. Yeah, because my brother was born when I was seven. So I was nine when he died. And I and my mother had started going into the hospital. My grandparents had moved from Tennessee to Honolulu when my grandfather retired. So that was our home base. We'd go there every summer. And so she was admitted into the hospitals in Honolulu. And I heard vaguely it was for cancer treatment, but none of that had any impact on me. What the heck and, is that, huh? <laughs> yeah. I just I knew she was in the hospital and I thought I, I really wasn't even fearful or anything. And um the do her doctor's daughter was one of my friends. So we were always having sleepovers and playing together. It just I didn't associate her doctor even with right, anything, right. you know. So I don't want to, I certainly don't want to um, foreshorten talking about your mother. And so let's take a break and come back in, a, in okay. just a couple of minutes. Listeners, sure. you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. Well, I guess it's X these days. Um, to sign up for my email list, you, there's also a link there. And to find Catherine K. Abdulbaki, you can go to katherineabdulbaki.com. K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-A-B-D-U-L-B-A-K-I.com. Be back soon. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Catherine Abdul-Baki about her memoir, um, Dancing into the light, and um, we just began talking about your um, mother. I have to say, I was a little in love with her while reading the book mm-hmm. because such a um, such a uh, lively spirit. Um, which, of course, she I guess she needed to traverse all over the world to unfamiliar places. She seems to have had a great sense of adventure. Yes. She did, and she was kind of fearless. I mean, everything she saw, she enjoyed. She enjoyed living in Tehran, Iran. She enjoyed living in Kuwait. She enjoyed my father's family in in Jerusalem and his family in Lebanon. He had family on both sides. Nothing really fazed her. She, She never changed anything for him. She always stayed the person she was. And um, it was a very early feminist, huh? In that way, <laughs> she was totally raised that way. I think my her grandmother, I mean, her mother was very open and very encouraged that. And um, she, you know, she sort of defied her parents when she dropped out of college in her third year and and headed off to Washington to see the bigger world um, and married my dad without telling them. Because she knew they, or she thought what a they, rebel. She was a rebel. Yes, <laughs> yeah, she was. Do you have that within you as well? I'm much less so because I grew up in the Middle East, and conforming there is much more of a virtue than it is here. Um, but I, yes, I guess I have a little of that rebel in me as well. Yeah, <laughs> we make the best of our of our we parents. Do. We do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. So, um, you know, I f- I felt you captured your relationship with your mother in a very, um, from a child's perspective, and of course, you weren't much out of 
um, childhood losing her, uh, or maybe you weren't out of childhood when you lost her, which in a sense sometimes kind of freezes a person, you know, in your, and I wondered if, if there's any way that your understanding of her and your, your um, relationship with her internally has continued to evolve as does happen sometimes. Uh, it's interesting because she died when she was 31. Um, she had me early, so I was 11 at that at that point. Um, to me, she's frozen in youth. I always see that young woman. I'm, you know, so much older than she is now. But to me, she's still, you know, mommy at that point, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I, I understand her more, and yet I don't understand her that well because I grew up and later when she passed, I grew up more with the Arab side in me. Mm. And she was always just very, very open, very American in her ways and her habits, uh, much more independent than I was, much, much less sensitive than I was, even just temperamentally. I was always a much more sensitive child than she was, I think. Uh, but that's whether that's due to upbringing or just chemistry. Right. I was always or a combination. Or combination. Yes, I was always in a way closer to my dad, only because we had a similar personalities, and mm. um, and I think a lot of kids, you know, are girls are close to their fathers, and I was very close to mine. Um, he was the dancer in the family, which I loved. I associated him with the music. There's and, a through line of dance throughout the book. Yes. Which yes. I, I really, since I believe that grief is creative and, and yes. creative activity helps grief, yes. um, the fact that you kept bringing in the dancing uh, seems yes. meaningful to me. Yes. That, that that's something that has carried on through your lifetime. Um, uh, yes, and it, it was important. He he kept it up even after, though he was grieving. He kept going to dance parties with our friends, taking me along, and so that was a a real boon to me, lifting me out of the depression and the loss, and and having that community of neighbors that were also there to help me, and um, that was really very powerful. And so when I started dancing later in life as an adult. I just, it brought back all those memories and, it, you know, until now it just lifts my spirits to do that. Mm, absolutely. Um, I am aware, uh, in a second I'm going to have you read uh, about your mother's, yes. uh, the loss of your mother, but I am aware that although you say you were, because of where you grew up, you felt maybe more affiliated with uh, your father and your Arab um, heritage. Um, I am aware that when it was just him and he pushed that a little harder, yes. you, you definitely were not, uh, you know, for it. <laughs> that you right. you wanted to maintain your sense of the American part of you, which had to do with independence and freedom and um, different rules, a little bit different rules. Yeah. So that really stood out. And during my mother's lifetime, while she was in the house, now she left the house when I was nine to come to the U.S. to have her medical treatment. But until then, we had a very American household. Mm 
Uh, we spoke English at home, our habits, our, we had Christmas trees and Easter baskets and Thanksgiving. So it was a very much of an American household. It was really after she left and then more importantly, after she died, that, you know, that's when the Arab part came in much more. And by then, you know, my personality had been sort of set with that, as you say, independence. And and I pushed back a lot against my dad, who, you know, being a widower, having no idea what to do with a young girl, he just reverted to what he knew. And that was, you know, the more, more I don't want to say conservative, because that gives signs of, you know, wearing headscarves and things. But there was none of that in our house, but just more conservative than it had been before. And I'm I'm also aware that that's a complicated uh, phenomenon because um, many widowers who have adolescent daughters, it's pretty frightful because they don't have the direct experience, but they're now in charge right. of fighting. And I think there there can be a kind of overprotectiveness. Yes, uh, that that would have been different in any case without you know, his background, um, if your mother was there, because she would be helping you navigate it, most likely. Correct. And he probably would follow her sense of what it is to be an adolescent girl. (laughs) No, that's very true. And Arab rules for adolescent girls were a little different um, and are still a little different. And he'd also lost a son and a wife. So Mm -hmm. he became even more protective of me and of any danger I could be in and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I I realize this is sort of returning a little bit or going backwards a little bit, but would you share um, the part of your book about about the loss of your mother? Yes. Now, here I was um, 11, and uh, my mother, my father had received word that she, um, oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, this is, I, I was 11 again, and we had come for our last visit to see my mother when she was at NIH in Washington, Bethesda. Uh, she had uh, left Honolulu, come there for treatment, and my grandparents later joined her, uh, joined us. But this is my father and I visiting from Kuwait uh, during that time. I believe it was in uh, February of 1964, 63, I'm sorry. So I had overheard my grandfather talking to a relative on the telephone in Tennessee, and he mentioned something about the possibility of my mother's death that night. And she was in the hospital. I was in the apartment staying with them, with my grandparents. I started to cry, then to sob loudly. My father must have been at the hospital because at some point it was my grandmother's voice I heard calling out sharply. Now, Kathy, hush up. Maybe she'd come in earlier to comfort me, but Mama's snapping at me came like a slap. How was I supposed to react? And why weren't she and Grandy crying? I wanted her to come in and hug and kiss me and soothe me, as Aunt Aisha had after Umm Hassan my grandmother, Arabic grandmother, had died, but nobody came into the room. I began to recite the Fatiha, which is the opening Islamic prayer in the Quran, the way Aunt Aisha had shown me to banish my fears and bad dreams. I repeated the Arabic verses to myself between sobs, desperately wanting them to take away my pain. 
in the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful. Praise be to Allah, the cherisher and sustainer of the worlds. I may have stopped crying there, whether out of fear of further irritating my grandmother or because I was comforted by repeating the familiar lines. Instead of taking me in her arms, my grandmother had expressed anger at my grief. I knew Mamma was anguished to watch her happy, vibrant daughter wither away day by day. What I didn't understand then was her inability to comfort me was due to her own despair at her powerlessness to bring her daughter back to health, her utter helplessness to take away my pain. But the distress at the thought that my mother might die that very night bore into me like a stake. Some days later, my mother seemed to be doing better. So reluctantly, my father made plans for our return to Kuwait. We'd been in Bethesda, he and I, three weeks, and my mother had been urging him to take me home. She would be fine with Mamma and Grandy, she assured him, but I was missing too much school and he was missing too much work. We visited the hospital a last time to say goodbye. When I went to hug my mother, something inside me told me I would never do so again. This sudden fear that she was going to slip away from me forever was overpowered by an equally strong belief that this could happen. I told myself that I was being overly dramatic, that she was indeed getting better, just as she said she was. A part of me wanted to hug her tight and curl up beside her in the hospital bed because it might be the last time I would ever do so. And yet that other part of me pulled back, perhaps protecting me from the inevitable horror of losing her for good. I also knew no matter how much I wanted to stay beside her, I had no control over anything. We had to leave. The shock that she could die, just as Munib had, was so great that a numbness cloaked me in the instant of denial and dread. On some level, in some horrible, childish selfishness, I wanted to get the misery over with, to no longer be in limbo about whether or not she'd live. More than anything, I hungered to hear her say she loved me. I wanted to tell her I loved her, but I was too confused, and it wasn't something we ever said to each other in quite those words. Instead, I stoically held her in an odd, cold way, as though I were watching someone else hug her. Then I turned my back and left. When I read that originally, um, I was thinking about how trauma um, punches the body and a defense in the body is to kind of shut down. But then you were left with your last hug not being a full hug, but it did seem quite totally natural to me that especially at that age, in that circumstance, with that sense of reality coming to pass in you that you just couldn't. It was too much, huh? I guess it was some sort of severe denial, but I just, I, I couldn't still feel that, the pulling away and the wanting to get it all over with so I wouldn't be hanging 
Um, and of course, that guilt stayed with me for years and years and years. That and I'm aware that at the age she died, you had uh, what sounds, you it, it's a whole other book. You didn't write that book, but that was so poignant to have gone through a major depression at just that age. Because, of course, I think the psyche does work like that to an extent. We, we hold things in our body and they affect how we are later. Yes. Do, I'm do you sure I held it for years. Yeah, because, well, you know, I didn't have any therapy. And, of course, people talked to me and my relatives talked to me. And, um, and then later on, much later, my father remarried. Not much later, about two years later, a year and a half later, he remarried. And, of course, then I... I felt terrible talking at all about her because I didn't want my new stepmother to feel, you know, slighted or left out. So I even held it in even longer. Of course, I didn't realize any of this. I was 12. Of course. And it's and it's really it's it's complicated because I've I've grieved with children in the house. Um, And it's it's a difficult thing because you're having a lot of. I'm totally open to the feelings. I have no resistance to the feelings of grief, as you can imagine. But sometimes it's hard to invite your children's grief when you are also grieving. The timing can be off. Right. Um, and and that's... I, I imagine. Think, yeah. So um, hopefully I balance that somewhat well enough. But we're about to have a, our, our last break. And when we get back... I want to talk to you. You may not have a literal answer, but I'd like to talk about whether you think there's there are um, uh, recognizable differences between the way Westerners or Americans grieve versus how Middle Easterners grieve, uh, Arab people grieve. Um, it's. I felt as if it might just be your particular family, but but the two sides felt very different about that. How how conversant and comfortable there seemed to be a difference. But I want to hear from you about that when we get back, listeners. You can go to weatheringgrief.com, my website, or the Good Grief Host page for all those links. And to find Catherine Abdulbaki, you can go to catherineabdulbaki.com. Back soon. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, Follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Catherine Abdul-Baki about her new book, Dancing into the Light, an Arab American girlhood in the Middle East. And before the break, uh, Catherine, I was saying I'd really like to get your perspective on the on whether you think there's anything beyond family differences in the different ways parts of your family handled all the loss. Um, you were mentioning during the break ritual. I, it does seem that that's different. Um, even my Jewish American friends have more ritual attached to death. And I've borrowed some of them because there's a lack of it beyond, beyond the funeral in, in the uh, culture I grew up in, um, which I think is really a shame. But I wondered what your sense of that is. Do you think um, there's, it's hard to piece together, you know, individual family differences, individual people differences, and then something background, something beyond that. What would you say? I think you're absolutely right with the the rituals that exist in Islamic, similar to the Jewish traditions. Um, they, they're required, you know, you are going to receive condolence visitors for three days and the people come and they're all dressed in mourning, you know, black or white, uh, and they bring food and they come and they spend, you know, half an hour with you and then they leave. And then this goes on all day long, sometimes with men, sometimes men and women, depending on the, you know, the family. But I, I never used to like going to these rituals. And yet when, when my relatives pass, certain of them, and I felt so comforted by the fact that suddenly everyone was there. 
um, for three days. So, so the person, the grieving person, is not left alone. Mm-hmm. The idea is to come and to and to always uh, have something sweet to eat. That's on the soul of the deceased, so that you know the afterlife can be sweetened, sort of, um, or his journey or her journey can be sweetened. I. I've come to like that sort of tradition because in my American family, and I think it was just my particular family, which was very much uh, you grin and bear it. And you, you know, you, of course, it was acknowledged and everyone was sad, but you didn't wallow in it. Whereas Arabs don't mind if you wallow in grief. (laughs) And even the word wallow, um, kind of judgmental uh, American word for. For deep mourning, isn't it? Correct. Uh, that's that's allowed. Like, yeah, and and um, since this is what I do for work, yes. uh, is sit with people in grief. Most people are really in their own way because they're judging that they're feeling such big feelings, right? So if there's nothing outside of you that says, "Yes, that's natural. Feel it." Yes. Um, it can really tie you up in knots. So there, it. I guess I would conclude from what you're saying. Yes, some difference. Hard to tell which part is what. Correct. But but um, some difference that has to do with um, acknowledging the huge nature of what has happened. Does that capture it? Yes. I mean, each individual is different. I feel. You know, having gotten to know my um, extended family in Tennessee, and they're very warm and they're much more effusive in their feelings, I think they would have handled grief differently than, say, my grandmother did, who was a very sort of a strong-willed woman, and and you know, you could feel sad, but don't wallow in it too much, and kind of a little bit on the stoic end, on this very stoic end, yes. Um, and my Arab family was much more open about grieving and um, more so. Did that apply to other types of feelings too? You know, I grew up with a minister father in the Protestant tradition Uh and um, he was very, very liberal, left-wing, but he was very contained. Yeah. If that makes sense. On every level, not, let's not have any feelings that are too big. (laughs) And I wonder if that's kind of what you're talking about with her. I don't know with my grandmother. I mean, she she encouraged my dancing. She encouraged reading, but she was very intellectual. I mean, her own mother was a poet. And so there was always this, you know, uh, tradition of learning and expanding Mm -hmm. your knowledge. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't so much a touchy feeling sentimental. She wasn't a sentimental person. Mm -hmm. I was very sentimental. My father was sentimental. My Arab side were all very sentimental. So I think that clash... um, Mm-hmm. And my mother was all free-spirited, but sort of like my grandmother. She wasn't, I don't recall her being too upset by things. Yes. So I always so felt steady. different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was. Um, uh, because we're running out of time, unfortunately, sure. uh, I want to skip ahead because um, you have ended up, you, you, Although you didn't get involved at the time, you met your husband very, very young and just kind of knew, which is that intuitive leap is fascinating to me that people have sometimes. Uh, It turned out you were correct, right? Yes. And then, and you met him 
when you were still there. Yes. And now you're here. Yes. So you've returned actually to where near where your mother died. And exactly. I find, and where your parents met. Yes, in Washington. That's a whole other book, I feel, um, that we don't have time to talk about. It is. It is. Then, of course, your father as well came back uh, to the U.S. Um, yeah. with his wife and yep. their children, their your siblings. Yes, that just seems so poignant to me. Uh, there's a circle yes. that you completed in yes. some and. And learned all the dances here. Yes. <laughs> Do you live with a sort of sense of of um, poignancy about all of those movements and and um, returns and? Uh, you know, we um, my husband and I came to finish our college, and to he was going to do his. MBA and and we were going back to Beirut, Lebanon. We had no intention of staying. We had just we were just coming. And then the war in Lebanon really discouraged us from going back. And my parents, four or five years later, also left Lebanon because of the war, my stepmother and father. So everyone sort of ended up back here almost by coincidence. It wasn't planned. Uh, but it, there's a kind of repetitive history there, though. Yes. Because your yes. father couldn't go back. Right. Because of war as well. Yes, yes. And um, there's so much of that in the world. Yes. <laughs> Refugees. Now, I mean, yes. I always think about that, um, that the grief is terrible when these things are happening, right? Yes. But it's also what happens in the lives of people after they happen, which of course, captures me because of my work and grief. So um, you didn't intend to stay, but here you are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, it's um, my father's heart was always in the Middle East, even when he was living here. And he actually is buried in Jordan. He wanted to be. And um, the interesting thing is my stepmother had gone back to Jordan for a brief vacation and passed there several months ago. So she is buried next to him in Jordan. Mm -hmm. And um, I am here with my mom buried in Bethesda. It's just all very interesting. It, it is. Um, I, that's a good moment for you to read the final um, section that, that we identified about your father. It, it seems fitting as Thank we you. end our time. So now more than 50 years has passed, and I'm already a grandmother in this segment of, of two. And my father is, uh, is in the hospital with heart final stages of heart failure. Is there ever enough time or even a right way or time to say goodbye, to cram a lifetime of feelings and love into a few heart-wrenching and confusing moments? I felt a strange numbness invade me at my father's hospital bedside. It was like the coating of detachment I'd felt more than 50 years earlier in my mother's hospital room in Bethesda that had prevented me from asking her what was churning in my mind. Not whether she'd be getting better, for that part I already suspected, but whether she loved me, whether she was proud of me, most of all, 
I wanted her to reassure me that I would manage when she was gone. I hadn't been able to ask her any of those questions as I faced the terrible, terrifying inevitability of her death. They dogged me for years. Some days earlier, when my father had been conscious enough to still be speaking, albeit with his eyes closed, I pushed myself to ask him what I'd so many wished, so many times wished I'd asked my mother in her final days. Daddy, I asked in a playful tone, how much do you love me? Without hesitating, as he had on so many occasions, he had a ready answer for me. A lot, he said, enunciating clearly. A lot. My heart ripped, although I know he had summoned every ounce of energy in his frail body to give me that short answer. I pushed on, desperate to keep hearing his voice. This much, I asked, opening my arms wide in a childish effort to get him to look at me, to come back to us. This much, Daddy? Too weak to open his eyes, but perhaps sensing my gesture, he'd softly replied, Shway more. Shway, the Arabic word for a little. His use of the word, coupled with the English word more, reassured me that he knew exactly who he was speaking to, even with his eyes closed. I was his half-American, half-Arab daughter, Catherine Elizabeth Fatima, who had a foot planted in both the East and the West. I had lived this conflict of not being entirely Arab or entirely American, of being tugged mercilessly by both the East and the West. My path always seemed poised on the precipice of a cataclysmic collision. And yet, I was half Arab and half American, and I'd managed to vacillate between the two cultures, holding on to what I cherished from one while accepting that I could also belong to the other. My father, fully Arab, had finally seemed to accept this about me. Shway more, a little more. I smiled through my tears. Despite his ailing heart having been broken so many times, my father was still capable of loving me, loving all of us, far more than all the air I could gather within my arms in my wide, hopeful gesture. They were the last words he'd ever speak to me. Perhaps this is what my father was also telling me. It was time to move beyond the sadness. Each time I dance, taking those joyful times into my heart is a chance to move forward into the light. Mm. And it's never too late to complete things. That's what I think about there. Catherine, thank you so much for being with me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And I hope people will go um, look for you and the book at katherineabdulbaki.com. Next week, I'll have Elaine Roth to talk about her novel, The Midnight Garden. It tells the story of a young widow searching for her way forward, which echoes Elaine's own experiences with the loss of her husband. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.